Welcome to Neurotypes, a neurodiversity podcast by Berkshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. In today's episode, we're joined by neurodiversity advisor Tani Prinderville and clinical director and neurodiversity lead Dr. Mary Evans. Together, they delve into Tani's journey from her diagnosis as an autistic person with ADHD to her current role within Berkshire Healthcare. Before we start, I do want to highlight that some of the things we discuss in today's episode are sensitive topics, such as diagnosis, misdiagnosis, and medication. I really do encourage you to read the episode description for more information. Hi, Tani. So we're going to talk today about your experience of your diagnosis of ADHD and then your later diagnosis of autism. Thank you really for sharing that today. I really appreciate that you're going to share your experience and your time. I think that's really, really generous and kind of you to to do that. Would you just like to explain a little bit about your role, first of all, within Berkshire Healthcare? Because that's something you've been working in for about a year now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And thank you for having me today as well. I think it's really good that we have the opportunity to talk about the experience of being diagnosed and how that affects you, especially when it's a little bit later on. Um, At the moment, I'm working as neurodiversity advisor. It is a lived experience role because I am autistic and I have ADHD. And my lived experience role is someone who has that lived experience. For example, they are diagnosed with For example, me, I'm autistic and I have ADHD, or you might be a carer for someone in that position or someone who has access to services. I'm helping lead with our neurodiversity strategy. Excellent. So, Tani, I mean, could you explain a little bit about what led to your diagnosis of ADHD and autism? Um, For me, my journey was a little bit different because I never thought that I was autistic or had ADHD and neither did my parents. So I ended up being referred to CAMS in the anxiety and depression pathway when I was 14 years old. And as I was meeting different professionals, they suspected that I could be autistic. And that's sort of how it started. So I was referred to specialist CAMS to be assessed for autism when I was 14. Okay, so you were referred for an autism assessment at 14? Yes, I was, because I started out with CBT therapy, which is um, cognitive behaviour therapy, but they realised it wasn't really working for me, and that's when they thought that I could be autistic. Okay, so you were referred at 14. When did you get the diagnosis? I wasn't actually diagnosed until I was 18 years old, because when I was first assessed, I was 15 at the time, by the time it came to assessing me, and... After we did the assessments, they spoke to my family. They said that it was borderline. That was the words that was used. It was borderline and I never got the diagnosis. And after that, it was just sort of forgotten about, really. And it wasn't brought up again until I was 17 years old. I was just about to leave CAMS and they asked if they could reassess me. And I wasn't too fussed at the time, really. I just sort of went with it. I thought, why not? I'm leaving CAMS. I may as well find out. If they want to reassess me, there must be a reason for it. And that's when I did get diagnosed. I was reassessed. They looked at the previous information and they decided that I was autistic, which was um, interesting considering it was the same service who assessed me the first time and they didn't see it then. Okay. And I think you explained once to me that you were diagnosed with ADHD before you were diagnosed with autism. Is, Is that right? How old were you when you had your ADHD diagnosis? I was 16 when I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was inpatient at the time um, for my mental health and when I was moved to a different hospital I met with a different doctor as soon as they met me they um, 
thought that I could have ADHD, I was assessed and um, I got my diagnosis and I started medication straight away for that. So there was two year gaps between all of the assessments. I was 14 slash 15 when they first thought I could be autistic. I was 16 when I was diagnosed with ADHD and then I was finally 18 when I finally got my autism diagnosis. Okay, so quite a, a long journey for you. Yeah, it was um, very difficult, I think, especially because it was just very confusing. Meeting different people, they all had different ideas of what could be going on with me. There was lots of a different misdiagnosis during that time as well. My parents weren't as accepting with it. It was quite a difficult period because no one really knew what was going on, including myself. Okay. So it wasn't straightforward? No, not at all. Um, but then again, what is straightforward? I feel like um, <laughs> it's quite difficult in this situation when you you know that something is different about you, but you don't know what. And at the time, it made me feel like something was wrong with me when the reality was I was just different. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything wrong with me, but I desperately wanted to be fixed. That's how I saw it. There was something wrong with me that needed to be fixed. And if I knew earlier, I wouldn't have had all those difficulties, I don't think, because I would have been able to manage it and work around it rather than thinking that I was a problem that needed to be solved. That's really hard to see yourself as a as a problem that needs to be solved. And you were sort of explaining about how you experienced the diagnosis. And I'm just wondering, was there a difference between being diagnosed with ADHD and being diagnosed with autism? I think I was far more accepting of the ADHD diagnosis I think it was a little bit easier because with the ADHD diagnosis there is a treatment plan with that so I started on medication and although it didn't fix everything it did help a lot and you sort of notice those effects almost straight away and it sort of made me realize oh that's why I struggled in certain aspects of school that's why I found homework and studying really hard to do and I was able to sort of work around that I feel like that was much easier than with the autism diagnosis because you are given your diagnosis and then that was it you're told you're autistic you think differently to other people you see the world differently and you don't really get much more information than that and I think with the lack of information out there with both ADHD and autism I feel like it was harder with the autism because at that time I had a very strict view of what autism was because um, I myself have family members who are autistic or they have um, learning difficulties and they have higher support needs so in my mind that's what autism was um, you required a high level of support 24 7 you would need to go to um, special educational needs schools um, like some of my family members so that's what I thought it was so I found it harder to accept that I was autistic because of my narrow view of what autism was. I'm just thinking about what you understand about autism now if you could almost go back in time and if you could talk to yourself as as a teenager at the time of getting your diagnosis what would you like to have been told at that point I think it would have just been nice to know that everyone is different whether you're autistic or you're not autistic everyone is different people say that everyone's an individual but then when you think of things like autism you might think okay that means you're this but that's not the case everyone will have their own set of traits they will have their own set of strengths and their own set of challenges and you don't have to present a certain way to be autistic especially because I was very good at masking 
Um, I would say I still am, but I am working on trying to unmask myself. But I think you don't really know who you are at the time. I certainly didn't know who I was at the time. So I think that sort of made it harder to accept that I was autistic because I was hiding a lot of it from myself as well as everyone else. So I think just learning more about the different presentations, especially for teenage girls, which I was at the time, that their presentation can be very different to a lot of people. But at the time, we didn't know much about it, which is why they wanted to reassess me when I was older, because they learned so much. In just those four years, so much was learned about it to the point where they realised that I may have been missed the first time. Thank you. And you mentioned masking. Um, some people might not know what masking is. I'm just wondering if you could explain a little bit about what masking means for you. For me, masking is you want to be able to fit in, but to do that, you have to change who you are. I've never actually described masking before, so that's a um, really interesting question with that. It's you want to be a part of something, a part of a group. You want to have a group of friends. You want to be seen as normal. So you adapt yourself to what you think normal should look like. For example, I don't like eye contact at all, but I know it's normal to um, be good at eye contact or to um, have eye contact when speaking to people. So I would know to do that, even though it made me feel very uncomfortable or I wouldn't be able to listen as well if I'm not looking at someone in the eyes. But I would do that so that I could fit in and I didn't appear different. Um, I know that rocking is seen as odd by a lot of people. They don't understand why people rock. Um, rocking is really useful for me sometimes. Um, it's really soothing, really grounding, but I know that people are going to think I'm weird if I rock, so I don't rock. That's masking. You're going against what is normal for you and what is right for you because you don't want to be seen as different. You don't want to be the odd one out. You just want to be like everyone else, or that's how I saw it because I assumed everyone was this, but I was that. I was that alien in the room that couldn't understand why I couldn't do all these things everyone else was doing but I desperately wanted to be like that thinking that's what I was supposed to be. That sounds quite exhausting actually. It is because it's almost like you're acting all day every day and it's I don't think I realised until after I was diagnosed that I would do it even when I'm by myself. I do spend a lot of time by myself. Um, I like my own company so that's fine by me but I didn't realise until after being diagnosed that I would even mask when I'm just by myself because it just turns into a routine and you don't know who you really are and you don't realise how exhausting that is until afterwards when you realise, when you stop doing it and you almost feel this relief from that and you wonder how you manage to do it for so long. It becomes very difficult to start masking once you begin to unmask. And then I think that's what becomes exhausting because you feel like you still need to do it in some situations. But as you begin to stop doing it, it's hard to bring that back up again. Do you think lockdown had an impact on masking and not masking? I'm just curious because of not being around people so much around lockdown and then having to be back with people in more social situations. Um, I definitely think it had a huge impact on that. For me... I don't think it's had as much of an impact because I was working on a ward. So I was still seeing people. I was still going out for work. Um, and it was quite social work because you're with a lot of staff. And I was also working with patients as well. Um, but by spending a lot of time on your own, especially 
school children, for example, going back to that environment where you didn't feel comfortable in the first place is really difficult, especially knowing there's an alternative where you can continue to get your education, do your work, but you didn't have to do all those extra things that were making things really difficult for you and putting yourself in unnatural and uncomfortable situations. For me, my example, which I would say isn't the same as lockdown, but it's where I reduced that contact is when I switched into this role um, because I do a lot of um, remote working or if I work in the office, I am by myself working. So that did limit my contact and I feel like that has made things a bit harder for me because now I'm not used to the social element as much, which is similar to a lot of people with lockdown when everyone started working at home or I'm um, doing school from home. It does really change because you realise how much effort you had to put in just to be in a room of people, let alone doing your work or trying to learn, being in school, in your lessons. So having to go back to that, it really does exhaust you because you get out of that routine of putting that mask on, putting that front on, and then you have to do it all over again after having a couple of years where you didn't have to do that. And that's when a lot of people do get burnt out. Thank you. I'm just thinking about the experiences you've been describing and you didn't know until like a much older young person almost an adult about being autistic and a, an older teenager of ADHD what do you think the difference would have been like if you'd known as as a much younger person maybe at primary school I think my school experience would have been a lot better um Unfortunately, I didn't get any of my um, GCSEs in school. I couldn't do my exams. I found it really hard to go back in school after being in hospital. So that was almost like a lockdown for me as well. I was taken away from that environment. I was taken away from the outside world and coming back, I just couldn't go back into school. And also the school didn't want me there because I did require a lot of support and the school wasn't willing to put that support in place, which was a shame because um, I've always been a high achiever. I've always been top set. I've always expected a lot from myself as well as people around me. So to go from that to not getting any of my GCSEs, that was real hard hit for me. It was really unexpected for everyone. And it's a shame because I do see it a lot with young people as well. When they get to GCSE age, things do get harder. You are required to use a lot more brain power in terms of revising and preparing for exams whereas before you can sort of you can get by quite easily without having to do all those extra bits but when it's required then it becomes really difficult. I think one thing I remember asking for in terms of my exams was to be able to sit by myself because I said I couldn't be in a room full of people I found that really hard really overwhelming and my school said that they would accommodate for me but when I came in I wasn't in a room by myself I was in a smaller room which still had around 50 people in it and I went in for one exam and I spent 10 minutes in the room just working out how I can get up and leave I was terrified to be in there there it was silent but it wasn't silent enough it was silent enough for me to hear all the different noises everyone writing the clock ticking the staff walking around the room and it was just such a horrible feeling I never went back for any of my other exams but I feel like if my school was aware of me being autistic I could have potentially had my own room there the way that I was set up to do my revision I could have had more support with things like that but because they weren't aware they were aware I was struggling but because I didn't have that diagnosis at the time the school didn't want to put the support in place for me and that did have a really big impact on um, my teenage years.
Thank you. And you, you were describing um, the experience of being in the room, um, and I could almost imagine it. You were, you were talking about the clock ticking and, you know, people walking around and the sounds of people writing. And um, my understanding, that's about sensory processing, isn't it? So how we sort of um, process information around us, either, you know, touch, sound, um, various different things. Has that had an impact on you? And does knowing you're autistic help understand that as well? I think that, Knowing I'm autistic, it has helped, but only recently. I think initially when I was diagnosed, because I wasn't necessarily expecting that diagnosis, it wasn't something that I was searching for myself. It made things quite difficult at the beginning because I was noticing things that I didn't notice before because I was aware that it was something that I could have been struggling with that I never looked out for before. So it seemed like everything was amplified because I was searching for it and if you look for things you will find it and those were things that I think I try to ignore myself because if I'm in a room in school and I can hear the machine from the aircon on the outside really loudly but everyone around me seems unfazed by it I'll just tell myself to ignore it because if no one else say anything no one else noticing it then maybe it's just in my head it's not actually there so to know that these things were real and that I was just more sensitive to it. I could notice things other people couldn't notice. It made it more loud for me, either that or the fact that I was no longer trying to tell myself that I was sort of making it up or trying to be difficult in a situation. Um, everyone's different in terms of um, their sensory experiences and it can change day by day as well. So if I'm stressed about something, it'll tend to be a lot worse. I find that things will affect me in a different way and it can bring me to a meltdown, whereas on another day, I would have been able to manage it. But no, that's really interesting and really helpful though, Tani, because I think what you're, what you're explaining is that what people might see and experience one day may be different to what they see and experience another day. And then for someone who doesn't understand autism or ADHD, they might not understand why someone like yourself coped with something one day and then didn't cope the next day. But it sounds like those experiences are slightly outside your control at times. Yeah, it is. Um, you can have some sort of control with your reaction in the very early stages and how you manage it, but it can reach a point where it's almost like an out-of-body experience and you can't control it and it feels like everything that's going on outside you is going on inside of your body. It's quite hard to describe, but it's physically painful. And I think that's what makes it difficult for people on the outside because you can look like you're almost having some sort of tantrum for something that they can't even see going on, but you're going through physical pain. It's hurting everywhere in your body. You feel like your skin is crawling, your head is pounding. And it's just from minute noises that other people can't even hear. So I think that can be really difficult. It can be really difficult to sort of seek that support in that moment as well, because you're just focused on what's going on with you and how to stop it. And once you're in that, it's really hard to get out of it. This might sound like a stupid question, but you said it might look like you're having a tantrum. So if you're in that experience, in that moment, what if somebody came up and just said, calm down what's going on just calm down calm down is probably the worst thing that you can say to someone going through that sort of experience um 
if I could, I would. I do not want to be feeling what I'm feeling right then and there. I don't want to be reacting the way I'm reacting, but there's nothing I can do. There's no on-off switch for that. It's just about riding through it. Once you've reached that peak, there isn't really anything that can bring it down. It's just about being with that person to ride through it. And sometimes the way to support them is to leave them alone. I know for me, if I'm feeling very overwhelmed, I need to be left by myself. I need to sort of manage that. And I think the main reason why I like to be by myself is because I know that I can't control how I'm going to behave. And I don't want to unintentionally say something to someone that I'll regret later. I'll be upset if I say something a bit mean, but that's because I'm so overwhelmed in the moment. I just need that space. And sometimes you just need someone there. You don't need to speak to them because you're adding to the problem by that. If it's um, a noise thing, because quite often for me, it's a noise thing. I can hear lots of different things. If you're talking, you're making it worse. You're adding to it. Um, But having someone there so you know you're not by yourself, sometimes that can be useful as well. But for everyone, it's going to be different. The best thing is to find out how you can manage that with the person before they get to that point. Once they're at that point, it's not the best time to discuss these things, just to let them know that they're okay. Maybe try and work out what it is that's causing it and take them away from it, put them in a different environment that's a bit more quiet. If you know that there's a clock in the room that's ticking, take the batteries out of the clock, take that down, turn the fan off. All these different things you can do to try and change the environment rather than change what the person is doing because it's the environment causing that. Yeah, and I think what you said, that's really key, isn't it? If I could, I would, you know. So it's not that you're choosing to be like that, is it? It's it's something that's happening in spite of you, not because you're, you know, deciding that's how to behave in that moment. And that's really important for people under, to understand, isn't it? Especially when they maybe work with young people or work with adults and see them in that situation that they're not choosing to be like that. And the best thing to do is maybe come up with plans beforehand by the sounds of it you know, for people you care about, if you know things are going to kind of um, make things hard for them, try and uh, remove that in the first place by the sounds of it. So thank you. I, I was just going to say that, I mean, it sounds like you, you've come to understand a lot of the the challenges and, and how, how to manage them or live with them. But I'm just thinking about sort of strengths as well and things that you understand about ADHD or autism that may be a part of you that are more positive aspects as well as things that you're living with with difficulty? I think one positive that I get praised for quite a lot is out-of-the-box thinking but I find that quite hard that just the phrase alone is quite hard for me out-of-the-box thinking because quite often for me it just seems like the obvious thing and for other people they see it as out-of-the-box thinking so that's why I describe it that way but for me it's not but I guess that's just because we see things differently that's what it is you see the world differently you think of things differently you have different solutions I'm just thinking because when I was in school I think a part of it didn't help because my primary schools, so my secondary and my junior secondary, my infant and my junior school, they were next to um, a special educational needs school. And that's where my cousin went to. And kids can be really mean, like they can be really mean. So you'd hear things that people would say, like other children would say about the children going to that school. 
And I think from then, that's why I was really against the thought of being autistic. When it was suggested I could be autistic at 14, I thought, oh, that means they're going to send me to that school and all the other kids are going to be really mean to me, like even more mean to me than they're already being to me. So I think that's one reason why I must as well as I did as well, because I didn't want to be diagnosed autistic. And I think that probably affected the outcome of the assessment. Um, I've spoke to Mary about this a little bit before as well and one of the questions I remember in the assessment was saying that if you can understand certain phrases and the example that they gave was this raining cats and dogs and I knew what they was trying to say with the question when they said that but with that example I was like of course I know what it's raining cats and dogs mean and I know a lot of phrases like that what they mean but that's because I've heard them so many times that you learn to recognise what it is. And every time I hear a phrase, I have to go through that. It's all, it's not automatic. I have to manually go through it and work out the context that's being said in, what's going on around that and what it means. And I can work it out like that, but it doesn't come naturally. Um, a phrase that's used quite a lot of work is um, close to pay or co close to play. Close of play. Close of play. And I remember hearing that for the first time a few months ago, someone said it. And I've never heard of it before. It To this day, it doesn't make sense to me. I know what it means because I could work it out from the context. Like It needs to be done by this time at the very latest. But I don't understand why it's used. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. But the way that the question was phrased to me in the assessment was, do you understand it? It's like, yes, I do. Is it easy for me to understand? Not really, but I do understand it and I will be able to work out anything. But I have to go through that manually. So... I think the assessments come a long way since then because they realised things like that. Um, and one example, I think, as well, was around the special interests. And with boys, they would talk about things that might be interesting for boys because um, there was a thing where they thought that it was mainly boys who are autistic. Um, yeah. So a lot of the questions were centred around things that boys could be interested in. I, I had no interest in things they were talking about. Um, they were talking about things like cars and stuff. I don't... I have no interest in cars. That <laughs> wasn't useful for me. Um, another part of the assessment was about the book. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it was about a stupid frog flying over houses. And I remember having to read it. There was like no words. It was just pictures and you had to describe it. And at the time, so I was just turned 15. And at that age, you think you're an adult. I thought I was in my 20s at 15. So I'm thinking, why am I being given this children's book about frogs over houses? It makes no sense. I don't get it. And I just wasn't really engaged with the assessment. And I think part of that was, one, I didn't want to be autistic because of what I thought autism was and the reaction from my peers in school, the way that they spoke about people within that special educational needs school. And like I said, kids are really mean and it's because they don't understand and they don't know. And so that rubbed off onto me. I thought, I don't want them to do that to me. I don't want people to think of me that way. And so I almost unintentionally sabotaged my assessment I think which is why it was classed as borderline because I didn't want to be autistic and also just knowing the questions I was aware of what they wanted to get out of me but because of the way they questioned it I answered it how they questioned it because um, if you can ask a question I'll answer it like that I know what you want me to say but that's that's not how you phrased it so I'm going to do it from how you phrased it but we've come a long way from there, I think. I've, things have changed because I remember the second time it was a bit different. I think the understanding about 
girls and autism and masking has really changed, hasn't it? And boys and masking, actually, because it's not just girls that mask. And I think the more we understand um, autism, the more we understand um, the, the kind of unseen autism as opposed to the kind of stereotyped behaviours that people think about when they think about autism. And with that, the assessment tools need to change because a lot of the assessments were designed um, on an out, outdated understanding of autism, what autism is, on mostly observing boys, on mostly assessing boys. Um, and so that means that the diagnostic tools are very good at picking up a certain type of autism in boys. They're not so good at identifying autism for girls and autistic boys who who mask. So what we've looked at more, and I think a lot of people who do assessments now look at more, is asking questions about lived experience and how people experience the world from inside rather than how they are seen to experience it from the outside. And I think you maybe are describing seeing a little bit of a shift in that between your two assessments, because when you were first assessed at 14, we were much less aware of autism and girls. And by the time you were 18, just in those four years, the understanding had shifted really greatly, I think. Um, and I think that's partly why you were reassessed, because people who were working with you and knew you knew that it was something that might be helpful for you to understand. Um, I've got a bit of a kind of bugbear about the borderline <laughs> comments because it, 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 you know, what does borderline mean? And and I don't know how helpful that is for people. And I, I imagine there's a lot of people out there with borderline on a piece of paper somewhere. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, especially because when they said it was borderline, um, a word I really disagree with, with that, I think it was just left after that. There was like, oh, so we've done the assessment you don't meet criteria, it's just borderline for it. But clearly this therapy wasn't working for you and we thought it was because you're autistic. And then nothing came from that. It's like, so it wasn't working for you. It's not because you're autistic because you didn't meet criteria, but we're not going to do anything else. I think that was a difficulty with that. And also I think as much as I really grateful that I had the opportunity to be assessed again. I understand that it is difficult to get an assessment, so I'm very lucky that I had that opportunity and that people wanted to get that right for me before moving on to adult services. I think there is a part of me that is also quite upset that I had contact with so many healthcare professionals between the ages of 14 and 18, and it didn't get picked up until just before leaving CAMS. I wasn't actually given the diagnosis till after my 18th birthday. I was assessed at 17, but I didn't get it until after my 18th birthday. So I think there's also that grief from where it could have been picked up so many times and it wasn't. And then that will affect how you interact with services in the future if you think so many things were wrong in that time. I had so many um, wrong things diagnosed. And... um. As a consequence of that, I had treatment that wasn't appropriate for me. I was put in hospital that really made me more poorly at that time. And if it was just picked up earlier, that could have all been avoided. So there is that grief around that as much as I am grateful for finally getting a diagnosis. As I know it is difficult to get a diagnosis, it can be difficult to get a diagnosis. It's everything that led up to it 
that's quite sad and I know a lot of people will have similar experiences and it will it does affect how you work with services in the future because you may really need that support but because of what's happened in the past you might not go to them until it's too late until you are really poorly and you do require more restrictive interventions because you couldn't get there in time just because you're so scared of what's going to happen you don't trust that things are going to be right that's really difficult isn't it I'm I'm just thinking, Tony, because like you ex- said about the difficulty in getting assessments, um, and there might be people who are getting support from any number of different services where there's a question or query about whether they are autistic or not, um, but the diagnosis and assessment might be some way off. What advice would you give to to those people, either either the caregiver or the person who's receiving the care? I think just being curious and talking and finding out about the person you're working with because there's so many stereotypes out there of what it means to be autistic or to have ADHD. It's about learning the person you're working with. What do they find helpful? How do they process information? How do they prefer to be communicated with? Do they prefer to write? Do they need visuals? It's about learning what is going to work for them because something that might work for one person you've worked with who's autistic might not work with the next person. Everyone's very individual and by keeping that open, by being able to discuss with that person, you get to learn them and they get to learn you as well. They get to trust you. They get to know you. It might take someone who's autistic a bit more time to open up to someone or to be able to engage with them in a therapeutic way it's about allowing that time I think people think if after two or three sessions you haven't got much engagement with each other then that means it's not going to work and that's it you need to look for something else that's not right you need to give people time because it's their life it's you're not going to want to speak to someone that you've just met straight away Um, I think for anyone that's really difficult but it can be more difficult for people who are autistic giving them that time and working around what works for them being able to adapt stop being so rigid in certain ways of working no thank you so so you're explaining it's about really get to know the person in front of you isn't it get get to know them and engage with with them as an individual and and it feels like what you're saying is also not to see an autism diagnosis or lack of autism diagnosis as a barrier to getting to know that person and, and supporting them. Thank you so much, Tani and Mary. And a special thank you to Tani for opening up about your journey and sharing it with us today. This is part one of our first ever episode. So keep your eyes peeled for part two, which will be launching shortly. If you have any questions about what was spoken about in today's episode, or have suggestions about the sort of topics you would like to hear us discuss, Our contact details are available in the episode description.